Hey folks, Corey here. Before we dive into today's episode, I just wanted to tell you about another program that I've come to really respect and enjoy. Best of the Left is unlike anything else out there because it's all about curation rather than creation. Jay Tomlinson has been producing the show since its inception and uses his years of experience to shape each episode in ways that dive deeper and bring out more details on topics than is usually possible from a single source. Each episode focuses like a laser on a different topic, allowing deeper coverage than any one show is capable of. With a deep catalog of episodes, Best of the Left has effectively created an archive of the progressive movement over the past decade and a half. The power of curation is in the bringing together of a variety of voices that combined become greater than the sum of their parts. And the show doesn't just curate news and opinion, but also activism, so listeners can turn information into effective advocacy. Just in recent weeks, they've aired episodes about native land back, about uh, neurodiversity, about positive masculinity. It's all relevant topics that many of us are engaged in today, and sometimes, as we know here on this program, engaged citizens can disagree on important matters, but I always come away more informed. But if you only have time for one episode, make it their milestone 1500th show, 1,500 shows. That's the show that Jay sets aside his normal curation format and instead lays out as many of the smartest ideas he's come, he's had or come across in all his years of thinking deeply about politics, it's definitely worth your time. As you'd expect, you can follow Best of the Left anywhere you get your podcasts. That's Best of the Left. And now, back to our show. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, Corey Nathan, and this is awesome. This is so awesome because we get to talk about faith and politics and race sometimes. All the stuff that, you know, your Aunt Joan, she comes to Thanksgiving and she's like, yeah, let's not talk about politics and religion. Well, we talk about it because we're trying to figure out how to do it better. And it is an honor to be a part of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts that examines what's broken in our democracy and how we can work together to fix it. And remember, I, I, I have a favor to ask. If you could give us a rating and especially leave a review if you haven't done that already, those reviews really do matter. Not just to uh, when I see your two-star review and why, well, all the things I'm doing wrong and helps me get better, but in all seriousness, for the algorithms, it helps our show get discovered by folks who, re who really want to be a part of these types of conversations. The easiest way to find us is our main site, www.politicsandreligion.us. That's politicsandreligion.us. Or feel free to contact me on all the socials, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. I'm loving threads, actually. I am at Corey S. Nathan. That's at C-O-R-E-Y. S is in Sam, N-A-T-H-A-N, at Corey S. Nathan. All of it really helps get the word out so more people can participate in the conversation like the one we're having today with Alexandra Hudson. Alexandra Hudson is a writer, popular speaker, and the founder of Civic Renaissance, a publication and intellectual community dedicated to beauty, goodness, and truth. 
She was named the 2020 Novak Journalism Fellow and contributes to Fox News, CBS News, The Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Time Magazine, Politico, and Newsweek. She earned a master's degree in public policy at the London School of Economics as a Rotary Scholar and is an adjunct professor at the Indiana University Lilly School of Philanthropy. She is also the creator of a series for the teaching company called Storytelling and the Human Condition. Her first book, The Soul of Civility, Timeless Principles to Heal Society and Ourselves, is coming out soon from St. Martin's Press, and we'll be covering a lot of that at length today. Alexandra, Lexi, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? Great, great. Thanks for having me. You bet, you bet. Now, I wanted to first ask you, who is Judy the Manners Lady, and why are you particularly partial to her? So Judy the Manners Lady is my mother. She is this international expert in manners and etiquette. She actually just had a book uh, come out of her own a few months ago called uh, The Bad Manners Monsters, which you can get on Amazon and other retailers. But um, And so she's this international expert on manners and etiquette. And what I discovered during my writing this book is that she's one of four women in the world who are internationally renowned experts na- on, on manners and etiquette named Judy. <laughs> so my mom is one of four of these Judiths in the, in the manners biz. She's, uh, so she's, but she's my favorite of these, of these. The most famous is probably Judith Martin, the Washington Post columnist. Uh, that is not, so she's, she's called Miss Manners. That is not my mother. Um, but all that to say, my mom, she, she, she trained my brothers and I in the ways and means of politeness and etiquette and courtesy, common decency to others. Um, she also embodied the spirit of true civility, of just other-orientedness, graciousness, hospitality to the stranger, and um, was a perfect model of, of that to my brothers and I. Her example is a great instructor uh, to us. One thing my mother said was that manners mattered because they were an outward extension of our inward character. And even though I am very much not a rule follower, I'm like constitutionally allergic to authority the moment someone <laughs> says, do this, my question is why? And like, give me a good reason not to. Like, I want to do my own thing unless I'm given a compelling reason to do the thing that they want me to do. And I just didn't like the idea of doing things just because the way we've, it's the way we've always done it because somewhere sometime decided that we should. So I was always skeptical of these social norms, but I followed them because my mother promised they would lead to, um, happiness and success in school and in life. And she was right until I got to the Department of Education. And, and I, I, I spent a year in government in Washington, D.C. in 2017 to 2018. And there I was confronted with these two extremes. On one hand, there were people who were uh, profoundly uh, hostile and aggressive. They had sharp elbows and they were willing to step on anyone to get ahead and gain their goals. On the other hand, uh, at first I thought this other contingent, I thought they were my people. They were the people initiated in the ways and means of politeness. They were poised. They were polished. Um, But these are the people, I realized, who would smile and flatter at me one moment and then stab me and others in the back the next. And this really perplexed me because I was not prepared for it. My mother had told me manners were an outward extension of our inward character. And that here, here I was surrounded by these people who were well-mannered enough and yet ruthless and cruel. And I, at first I thought these were two extremes, two polar opposites. 
But upon reflection, I realized that there are actually two, those two modes, extreme hostility, extreme politeness, are two sides of the same coin. Both instrumentalize others, both see others as means to their selfish ends, as opposed to being worthy of respect just because, in and of themselves, just because they're human beings like us. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, I was curious, you, the theme of, you, you just used the term others-centered, uh, others-oriented, and that's a theme that arises throughout the book. I was wondering if there were others that are the motivation of sorts uh, for your vocational pursuits now. I mean, the book is just is one piece of what you're doing as as a as a broader mission. So, to put it sort of in family terms, you mentioned you have brothers. I was wondering, are are you the one? I, I um, you know, I grew up in a certain family dynamic. I have three kids, so I can imagine one of my kids is a rule follower, and when others don't follow the rules, it really troubles him. So I can imagine him ten years from now, twenty years from now, writing a book like this, trying to proclaim to the world like hey this is the way it's supposed to be there's another kid i could also absolutely not just he's an absolute mess you know but i love him and he's so people-centered and everybody loves him and i could also see him writing the same book but from a different perspective of like hey i've really i've been an absolute mess and here's what i'm trying to learn along the way so of the two versions of that which one would you say is is your motivation for not just the book, but the, this larger mission that you're following? Well, I'm laughing because, like, your your child is bothered by people who break the rules. Yeah. Like, I'm laughing because I'm bothered by people who follow the rules. Like, <laughs> like my, my brother, for example, my younger brother, Sam, he's a rule follower. My husband, Kyan, he's a rule. They're rule followers. They're like, no, the sign says this. We are yeah. going to do what the sign says. And I'm like, well, did you ever think about why the sign's there? Should it be there at all? Like, I want to have a conversation about that. Like, I'm the kind of person, if there's no one in line at TSA, I am going to, like, duck, duck underneath the you know, ribbon, like the barrier to get to the front of the line, you know, like no one's right. there. I'm not, my husband is the one that will zigzag. He'll follow the path that is perfectly <laughs> outlined. Even if it takes him 15 minutes, like I, and I'm like, no, that's insane. He's like, no, the path is there for a reason you fall. I'm like, I'm like, absolutely not. So anyway, I, I am bothered by people who, who, who <laughs> follow the rules thoughtlessly. Cause I, I like to know why we do things and whether there's a purpose for doing them. So, um, the, the purpose of this book, there, there's absolutely, and my life's project to answer your question, there's absolutely a, a spirit of service here. And there's a tension, um, in, 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 in my work, because on one hand, I care deeply about making the world a better place. And that's why I went into government. I got to government was thoroughly disillusioned by government and the way that our, our, you know, system operates right now and the divisiveness and I didn't feel like be, was being part of the solution. So I left to write this book and I've started writing it and it's, it's, it's a thing. It's now, you know, available. I can't wait to share it with the world, but in writing the book, you know, the, the tension is between writing it to make the world a better place. Um, but also for, for my children to grow up and I have two children, Percival James is three and a half and Sophia Margot is one and a half. And I became a mother while writing this book. And my motivation to write the book was enhanced because it's like, oh my gosh, the stakes are high. I now have human beings that I'm raising in this world and I want it to be a better place for them. I want, I mm. desperately want it to be a more gentle place. Like it's, the world is savage. The real world is cruel and I want it to be a little bit brighter and more gentle for them. On the other hand, writing the book 
was an enormous undertaking. Selling the book, you know, doing what I'm doing right now is an enormous undertaking. It's a whole other, you know, enterprise that takes me away from them, both both writing the book and, and doing what I'm doing now. And so there is this tension there. Like, I, I, I feel compelled to do it. I have to do it. Um, I remember in the early days of working on this book and conceiving the project, my friend Tyler Cowan told me not to write it. He's like, don't do it. Writing a book's super hard. It's a ton of work. Uh, don't do it. There are other ways to like get your ideas out there. He's like, only write the, this book if, if you have a disease and writing the book is the cure. And that's exactly describes my, the state of my psyche and my spirit like then and now. Like then I had a disease. I had to write the book. I've written the book and now I'm cured. Like I don't feel the need to like write another book on civility and the history of social norms now. I've said what I want to say and I'm thrilled with it. I, I'm so grateful to people like you who have read it and I can't wait for everyone to read it. Um, so yes, definitely a spirit of service, a spirit of wanting to make the world a better, brighter place. Um, and so really grateful to be able to share it with you. So I have to share, um, I have, you, you just reminded me of a story, uh, something I experienced in New York City. Uh, this is either late 80s or early 90s. It must have been the early 90s. Um, and I, I visited my buddy who was in a, a play, a tiny little theater downtown. Uh, it was a 99-seater, and there were two established actors in it, George Zunza, uh, who folks might remember, one of his big roles was in The Deer Hunter a legendary film. And then the lady, I forgot her name, but the lady who was the voice in Sleepless in Seattle. And it was a particularly hard rehearsal because this legend of the New York theater, a lady named Uta Hagen came in and just eviscerated everyone there. It wasn't up to snuff. And she let everybody know. And after the rehearsal, I went out with my friend and, and these two um, established actors, these, these wonderful artists. And um, my buddy's... My buddy was really feeling it. He was just feeling terrible about his craft and about his contribution to the, the play. And he just asked, why do we do this? And uh, the lady who is the voice from Sleepless in Seattle, she said, she took a deep breath and she said, because we must. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so a lot of these things that we do, it's like we, there's no other... There's no other way to do it because we do it because we must. But I have to tell you, I got into an argument um, and uh, on social media, and it's all your fault. <laughs> oh, okay. Tell me all about it. Yeah, so I was I, I was reading the book, and I came across uh, you were quoting from uh, Gospel of Mark, chapter seven. Um, let me see if I have the quote. Here it is. Um, Out of a person's heart, evil thoughts come: sexual immorality, theft, murder. Adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. So being the troublemaker that I am, my, my friend Mike Madrid in, in um, Spanish, it's travieso, travieso. Um, in Yiddish, it's tsurismacher. My grandfather messed it up. Uh, being from Brooklyn, he called it tzitzkamacher. So I posted it online and I said, who does this remind you of? <laughs> so we had, you know, I would say 90, it was a, a lot of people engaged for whatever reason. Um, and a lot of it was, uh, you know, thoughtful engagement. And some folks don't, who don't know each other kind of engaged with each other. And it was kind of cool to see, you know, two people engaging in a civil way. And then one person that I, I knew, not nice enough guy, but he, he left a quote that I considered to be, for lack of a better word, cliche Christianity. And I, it just bothered me. Um, it, was, uh, it, it looked to be coming from a place of defending his home team in a way. 
Um, and and I, I try to let him know, not in a mean way, not in like a snarky way, but in a thoughtful way. And it just, it devolved very quickly. He, mm. you know, he immediately resorted to commenting on my age and my character and my integrity. And it was just terrible. But I will say, I kept, a, I, throughout this whole process, it was like going on over the course of the weekend. Um, I, I was still reading, you know, I was still reading the book. And, uh, you know, because of your book got me in trouble, but it also, I, it also, um, inspired me to take a different approach. So Hmm. I took a break, uh, I forget if it was a day or two, but Monday or so I decided to, um, message him directly. And, uh, I said, Hey, Hey buddy, you know, it's been a while since we actually got together and this thing, like clearly, like we were talking past each other. Can I buy a beer? And his tone changed like 180 degrees. He's like, oh, man, that would be awesome. I thought you were coming at me. And, man, you know, I remember he uh, he worked for, for, for my company, and it was just a completely different tone. But all it took was just, hey, man, I, I feel like we might not have been, you know, hearing each other. Can I buy a beer or coffee or something? Mm-hmm. And just completely 180 degrees. So mm-hmm. all mm-hmm. that to ask you, um, you have – and we're going to get more directly into some of the things from the book. But one of the things that uh, struck me is you have this set of guidelines that you use for social media and, and other digital communication. Can can you go through some of the mindset or some of your own kind of checks that, that you're, you're, you abide by for your own sanity, your own communication online? Yeah. So a few things. One, uh, Part of what I talk about in the book is that you know there are reasons that I wrote this book now. There are reasons that you have this podcast now, right? Division in our country, our inability to talk thoughtfully and productively across difference is an issue. On the other hand, human nature doesn't change. We're the same today as we were you know, 2,700 years BC, which is yeah. where we get the oldest book in the world, which is also a civility book, which is, which I'm happy to talk to you about from, from, yeah, from ancient I, I was going to ask you about that. Um, yeah. but, but the point is that human nature doesn't change. Um, we're just as we're, we're, we're deeply social yet selfish. We are, we're, we're, we thrive in relationship and, and we become fully human in community. And yet we're, we're, we're inclined to meet our own needs before others, morally, biologically. And those two things are intention. That's why friendship, community, the joint project of living well with others in society is always fragile. It's never a foregone conclusion. So human nature doesn't change, but things like technology do, right? Like we're, there are new epiphenomena, all new, our new factors in our current moment that, that make it harder, um, to see the human being on the other side of an interaction. Um, and digitally mediated interactions are a huge example of that. So for, 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 for instance, um, I, 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 I strive and I encourage in my book that, that people strive to, to remind ourselves, as it sounds like you did in this exchange, that this is another, this is another human being. It's not a troll. It's actually someone that you know, someone you had a, a history with. Because often what happens in the heat of the moment, it's like you're, you're just – it's easy to diminish and, and tell ourselves a story that diminishes the humanity of the other because it's digitally immediate. It's just a Twitter you know, icon or avatar, and it's not a human being on the other. But, of course, it affects – human beings. And, and again, it's presuming that it is a human being on the other side and not a, and not a bot or something like that. Um, but I mean, 
to, to, to remind ourselves of that is, is one practice that is absolutely essential to, 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 to maintain, um, uh, in our own minds that this is an, this is another human being I'm engaging with. It's not just, it's not just a machine that I owe them a bare minimum of respect in my interactions. And, um, I, I love, I love that story that you shared because, uh, it sounds like maybe even your head, you, you kind of gave him the benefit of the doubt too. Like it wasn't that he was just a bad person. He was someone, you know, and it had a history with that was maybe having a bad day. And that's something that we're also not very good of. We're, we're not very good at. We're not very good at telling those stories of exoneration. We're good at saying, okay, you said this thing to me and I'm going to react like with that information alone, as opposed to zooming out recontextualizing, reframing a little bit and saying, you know, what might have led up to this person, you know, interpreting what I said through such a negative lens and, um, and being so critical as, cause clearly like what you said was very triggering to him and he bit right back as opposed <laughs> to, um, maybe had he been in a better frame of mind, he might not have had that negative reaction, but you said it devolved so quickly. So clearly like, there was something else going on, but it was so, it was so gracious um, of you to take that perspective that, um, you know, that interaction was not the sum total of your relationship and not the sum total of who he was yeah. and not the sum total of who you were, but you gave that an opportunity to a, a, ch- a chance to rehash that rekindle that old friendship. And, and I, I bet, you know, if you're, op- if both of you are open to it, that the relationship becomes stronger through that reconciliation, which is so beautiful. That conflict can be actually really good and healthy for relationships because it's not today. Often, um, because we lack the basic respect and affection for one another, we our, our conflict is done really poorly. Uh, but it, but in fact, as as your story shows, conflict can be healthy and and we can thrive through it. Yeah, you you might be giving me more credit than I deserve because I'll I, I'll tell you that my impulse was the uh, I think you you use the term libido dominandi. Am I using that yes. term right? Yeah. That was my impulse. Is like I'm going to show <laughs> this guy. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, right? <laughs> I'm going to put him in his place. But I. I it took me a second with every reply to try to glean, to, to see through the kind of yes. rhetorical barbs, the rhetorical yes. punches he was throwing, um, and to try to glean some substance and respond to the substance. And then finally, at a certain point, um, I just had to take a break because I, I, the, the impulse in, in me, that libido dominandi. Dominandi, yeah. Dominandi, okay, was, yeah. Uh, was really the prominent and, and nothing good was going to come of it, so I had to back away. And I will say that, listen, some of my favorite, favorite moments over the last three to five years have been moments where there was this tension, this really heated tension, um, and then there was a coming back together. Sometimes it took longer than others, but literally, I, you know, I, there have been times when I was in tears, come, that coming back together is so rich. But there have been other times where I, I don't have, I, I don't often get to a point where I have to basically, um, it, on digital, you, you can just block somebody. Um, but in, in life, I had to create a healthy boundary and say, I still love you, man, but I got to love you from far away, you know? Um, mm-hmm. So every once in a while, I, I've had to do that. I think for me, the only time that I have had to do that is when I recognized that their commitment to the fight itself, regardless of what the subject was, or regardless, like w- there wasn't even clarity of over what they were fighting over. It was just that they were they identified an enemy and they needed to continue to fight that enemy, regardless of of you know the content of it. So mm-hmm. speaking of which. Um, I love how you contextualize. You start the book and then uh, toward the end of the book, you, you continue to reference um, 
remind us not only you, you already mentioned, I think, do you say Teotep, the teachings of Teotep? Patahotep. Patahotep. Okay. I was doing the silent P. Sorry. Patahotep. But also you, you remind us the oldest story in the world, the Epic of Gilgamesh. So can you, um, can you remind us of the oldest story and the oldest book and their respective significance to the soul of civility? Yes. So <clears throat> I opened my book with the oldest story in the world, uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh. So uh, to illustrate that this is a timeless problem, and it's a problem not of now, not of America, but of the human condition that we've been grappling with across time and across place. This, this challenge and question of how do we flourish across deep difference, and what does that look like in practice? So Gilgamesh was an actual king. He was he's a historical king uh, of the city of Uruk, which at this time in ancient Sumeria was the cradle of civilization, and it, it, it was it was the pinnacle of civilization in a region now thought of as the cradle of civilization. And he was an absolute tyrant and a disaster of a king. He would take what he wanted from whoever he wanted, whenever he wanted, including and this was quite controversial and quite egregious something called first night's rights mm. where he would take the the young bride of one of his citizens one of the men in his country and sleep with her before the husband could and that was just the epitome of like disrespecting um women and the sanctity of of, of marriage and just all these like that was like it reminded a total me scandal. it reminded me of the premise of braveheart if you've ever seen that movie yeah yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so uh, just someone who is completely ruled by his lusts. He just took whatever he wanted without, without a care for anyone else in the entire world. And the people of Uruk cried out to the Babylonian gods and said, please save us, help us, save us from Gilgamesh. The Babylonian gods heard the people of Uruk and they created from clay Enkidu, this part man, part beast, like very primal, like you know, her suit, uh, rustic, rugged man. And uh, Enkidu goes to Uruk and challenges Gilgamesh to a fight, a duel, and they wrestle long into the night. And the people of Uruk are watching, looking on, like, who's going to win this battle? And finally, Gilgamesh wins. And then Enkidu, Enkidu does something quite remarkable. He extends to Gilgamesh hand of friendship and maybe even more remarkably Gilgamesh accepts that hand of friendship and that offer of friendship ultimately transforms Gilgamesh from this utter tyrant this despicable human being into an ideal hero and king and the remainder of this long epic of Gilgamesh is Enkidu and Gilgamesh going on all these adventures together as best friends for the remainder of their life and so the story gets to uh, several important insights that I unpack throughout my book. One is that on one hand, it kind of inverts this, this relationship between civilization and barbarism. Like here was Gilgamesh, king of the civilized world, and yet barbaric and cruel as any human being could ever be. He, he exerted power uh, over the powerless, people that couldn't defend themselves, and he was just utterly cruel. Whereas Enkidu is this is you know closer to earth, rustic, you know uncivilized in all the traditional sense, but he's the one that extends the milk of like the, the hand of kindness that ultimately conquers Gilgamesh's inner libido dominandi, the inner lust to dominate, and that leads to a second important insight that this this story reveals, which is 
Gilgamesh was defined um, by the, the libido dominandi, the lust to dominate, that St. Augustine says we all have in our soul. There's a dark part in all of us that, that wants to exert power and dominate others. But this is key. And it's wordplay in the original Latin, libido dominandi, that Augustine gets at. For, and we see this in Gilgamesh, that the libido dominandi that defined Gilgamesh became the dominating lust. He became dominated by his lust in a way that he wasn't actually free. He had become so deformed by just like doing, acting on impulse and exerting power over whomever he wanted, whenever he wanted. And that, um, that deformed him, that deformed his soul, deformed his spirit. But then here comes along Gilgamesh, offers the power, transformative power of friendship, and it ennobles him. It humanizes him. It makes him more human, but also more humane, more gentle, more kind. It makes him into an ideal hero, ideal friend. And that is the promise of relationship for us, for all of us to this day, that, that life with others is the highest and best life. It, 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 it helps us become the best version of ourselves, more fully human, more fully humane. Um, but it's also very challenging. It's hard. It's precarious. It requires consistent care and self-sacrifice uh, because of the, the gravitational pull in our nature that is that is uh, the libido dominandi, that is, Augustine also calls it, um, the incurvatus se, the inward curve upon the self, that we're, we're biologically and morally, like, like gravity, um, geared to meet our own needs before the needs of others. And that's why friendship is fragile, society is fragile, civilization is fragile. Um, so I start with the Epic of Gilgamesh, and the next chapter opens with uh, the Maxims of Ptahhotep. And Ptahhotep was an ancient Egyptian visor. He was an advisor to Pharaoh. And he had been, he was a gentleman who had reached the pinnacle of the political and business world and also an epicenter of civilization in ancient Egypt. He had been in the room where it happens his entire life. He was even offered a position. He was even offered the opportunity to be become visor of ancient of the the, the you know pharaoh of ancient Egypt, and he turned it down because he wanted to retire peacefully and quietly. And as he in, was in retirement, he reflected about the stuff of the good life and what what does it mean to 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 live life well. And so he put pen to paper, and he wrote down these thirty eight maxims of the good life that we now have today as the teachings of Ptahhotep. And he he wrote these for Pharaoh's son, like wanting to prepare Pharaoh, the future leader of Egypt, to to be a good and strong leader. But they were widely consumed in in, in Egyptian culture and passed down across generation. And this is. What's amazing, if you pick up this book today or go online and read it right now, they are timeless. A lot of these, these teachings in this book written literally almost 5,000 years ago could, have, could be in a Judith Martin Washington Post column, Miss Manners column, today. It's like very conventional wisdom, very basic things about how to, how to, how to, how to restrain our ego which is the hallmark of civility, so that we, our social natures can flourish. So, for example, Ptahhotep says, do not exert power over people who are less powerful than you. Be kind to those whom you have power over. Um, he says, don't be good to your friends just when you want something. Be good to them all the time. He says, don't gossip. There are at least three, maybe four admonitions in the maxims of Ptahhotep alone against gossiping, which is, which is remarkable. Gossiping is just as corrosive to trust and relationship and human community today as it was then. And, and the fact that he repeats over and over again, don't slander, don't gossip, is, uh, I think, really poignant. 
So, um, anyway, those, that oldest story in the world, oldest book in the world. And I illustrate, I use that to illustrate that this is a serious problem, a serious question, one that with no easy answers. And we know that because we've been grappling with it since the dawn of, of our species. And, and it gives us, I think, a necessary humility when talking about this, that there's no panacea, there's no policy solutions, there's no quick fix, um, it's, it's really challenging, but hopefully, you know, the, 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 the greater the motivation we each have to be a part of the solution, um, that's where I see hope. That's where mm. I see change happening is individuals choosing to reclaim the soul of civility. So the soul of civility, you, you really tease out certain virtues and make uh, distinctions. One distinction I was curious to hear you share is the difference between being civil versus merely being polite. Yes. So as I mentioned, when I worked in government, I saw these two extremes, hostility on one hand and extreme politeness on the other. And I realized that they were two sides of the same coin. And that helped me to realize that just as having good manners didn't um, connote and correlate with inner virtue necessarily, because I saw people who are well-mannered but cruel, not having manners didn't correlate with bad virtue uh, or a bad character either. And so that helped me parse in my mind that there's this essential distinction between civility and politeness. Politeness is a technique. It's manners. It's etiquette. It's behavior. Um, it's external. It's superficial. Civility is a disposition of the heart. It's internal. It is um, moral. It's seeing others as human beings just like us with equal moral worth and worthy of a bare minimum of respect in light of that. And this is key. Sometimes actually respecting others requires being impolite. It requires breaking the rules of propriety and telling hard truths, engaging in robust debate. And that's why I love the title of your show, Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. You know, the rules of politeness might tell us, you know, don't talk about controversial things at the dinner table like politics and religion. But politics and religion, they get to questions of the highest order in human existence and always have. And we can't just not talk about them and expect to flourish. We have to be able to talk about them. And so I argue that while politeness is not enough to help us flourish across deep difference when it comes to how we grapple with big questions such as politics and religion, civility, by contrast, gives us the tools and the habits uh, that we need to have these important conversations across across deep difference. So essential distinction. Civil- often people conflate these two ideas, whether people want more civility and politeness in politics or whether where they want less and claim that they're tools of, you know, people in positions of power, keeping the powerless powerless. Both of these, I- these contingents conflate these two ideas and it's essential that we separate them so that we want we know what we want more of and less of in society yeah yeah i love the illustration you shared and you know admittedly it was either queen victoria or eleanor roosevelt or someone you know who was uh you know that's that society looked to um but the um the story about Queen Victoria taking the the soup bowl up to her lips. And why did she do that? So Queen Victoria was having a state dinner uh, with the hosting the Queen of Sheba to her or Queen of Persia to her home. And um, the Queen of Persia 
did the unthinkable. She took the, the bowl in front of her and tipped it to her lips, and everyone gasped. Why? Because this was a finger bowl. It was meant to wash your hands, not to be sipped. So, so she absolutely broke you know, all the rules of propriety and etiquette. And, um, and this is in Victorian England, where manners and etiquette mattered a lot. And here, and then Queen Victoria, what, what she did next shocked everyone. She did the exact same thing. And why did she do this? Why did she tip the finger bowl to her lips, even though it was breaking the rules of politeness? Because she knew that doing so would put her guest at ease. And it was in the name of trust. It was in the name of friendship, in the name of having enjoyable conversation the rest of the evening. It was, it was, it was in, the, in the name of the longer-term project of flourishing with her guest and her new, her new friend. That um, sometimes it's essential that we break the rules of etiquette and politeness in order to truly respect others. But it's only when we have the disposition of civility, that disposition that, that has a basic affection and esteem for our fellow human beings, that we can know when to do so and also how, as, yeah. as, as Queen Victoria so, so graciously did in that instance. Yeah. You know, like I said, there, there are so many um, illustrations that you use throughout the book that really drive, uh, that, that really bring it home. And, um, one of the concepts that I loved, and, and now you, I have a hankering to, uh, I, I grew up in central Jersey, and Freehold is a really old town. It goes back before the Revolutionary War, and some of the houses there are literally 200 plus years old, and the porches are on the front. You know, my, my wife grew up in Alabama, really old town in Alabama, uh, Oxford and Anniston down, down south. Uh, same thing, some of the neighborhoods are, are older homes with the porches out front. And uh, one of the concepts you introduced, you make me want to live in that town, in, in one of those towns where the porches are out front. You, you introduced uh, us to a woman named Joanna Taft uh, and this beautiful new, or it was new to me, porching. So can you describe what that is and how that helps us uh, live out these, these virtues of civility? Yeah. So when I left a very divided season in, in government and, and Washington politics, it was my decision to leave. Uh, actually, my husband's from the Midwest originally. He's from Indianapolis. Or no, he's from Indiana. And I came home from work one day and was like, we have to go. I'm done with D.C. I'm done with government. And so a few months later, we moved to Indianapolis, Indiana, just a few hours from where my husband's family is. And um, one of my first friends here was a blonde woman with a, a bob and a ready smile who came up to me and said, hi, I'm Joanna Taft. Would you like to porch with us sometime? And I'd never heard the word porching used as a verb before, but curious and the fact that we didn't know many people, of course, we said yes. We went to her home that afternoon and what, what, what I saw surprised me. I saw this quiet revolution happening that Joanna was staging from her front porch. She had um, gathered people from across geography in town, across political divides, across racial difference, just to inhabit the same space. There was no program. There was no conversation. There was no itinerary. It was just like, let's just be together and have organic conversation, have relationship. And that's the... That's the um, the seedbed of, of trust, of friendship, that that is essential in order to have the much needed conversations about about difference and across difference. But that's the problem of, of where we are today, that we don't have that basic trust, that basic affection across difference, which makes those conversations fraught and impossible. And so 
um, Anjo and his porch, you know, we talked, we talked about religion and politics. They were not off the table at all, but again, we were, and we, we weren't all best friends immediately, but we, you know, we were there and we'd had enough, you know, rapport built up that we were able to talk about these things. And, um, it, it, it what I realized it was that her civility, um, and, and, and her hospitality through her porching, the disposition of, of porching, it enabled this, this quiet revolution that's happening. And, and she, this was, this was her oasis to this, this, this quasi public space from which she was healing our social fabric and our very, very divided moment. And what I, what I realized, um, was that she's not alone. There are people like her across the country who are reclaiming their civic sphere and saying, you know, I can't, I can't change what's happening in Washington. I can't do anything about the opioid crisis and the loneliness epidemic and all these different, you know, macro level serious problems that we're facing now. But she's controlling what she can. And she's she's choosing to um use what she has to to be part of social healing and it's and it's it's powerful. She's choosing to make the stranger a friend. She's being a gatekeeper in the inclusive sense, making the outsider an insider. And I use that story to, to, to encourage people that it's not about whether you have a front porch. It's about having that porching disposition, that openness to, again, crossing divides, making the outsider an insider, a stranger, a friend. And that we can do that whether or not we have a porch. We can have, it can be our front lawn. It can be our, um, a coffee shop. It's just having that welcoming spirit that wants to engage others, meet them where they're at and, and have, and leading with, leading with friendship, leading with conversation, not leading with the most controversial questions of the day. Uh, if we try and jump right in there, that's not really a a recipe for, (laughs) for productive dialogue. So, uh, porching, the porching revolution, ground zero of which is Indianapolis, but it's, but it's across the country. It's happening. It's coming. Yeah. And it's more of a mindset than necessarily to your point about having an actual porch because you can do it anywhere. I, when I first moved to this town, uh, Castaic in the very Northern part of LA County, uh, it, there was um, a coffee shop that I went to, a local that I went to every morning, and uh, a fellow who subsequently passed away, a fellow named Bernie, was there every morning. And a bunch of us locals would, would gather around Bernie and spend a good half hour, 45 minutes, sometimes a lot longer. We would just linger. And it was Bernie's basically uh, his, his version of porching. And it was just this random gaggle of people who happened to share the same space every morning, and it was awesome. But what that allows us to do, it's another concept that I really appreciated uh, that, that you introduced us to. I, I want to read this little, uh, this uh, brief quote uh, from the book. You say, in addition to unbundling experiences, we need to unbundle people too. Our current culture views the world and people through a cheapened simplicity. Everything and everyone is either right or wrong, good or evil. We define people based on one thing they've done or said, sometimes even if it occurred years or decades ago, and cancel them for it. This view of the world and people is reductive, essentializing, and degrading to the diversity and beauty of the human personality. I've been thinking of it uh, for a long time as rehumanizing as remembering as in they're a member of our community so remembering their humanity uh, but you articulated it in, in such a, a, a wonderful way that we rem- remember the humanity or unbundle people and not just um, create a an entire story about them or judgment about them based on one data point or one thing that we uh, we know about them 
It's true. We live in this era of, yes, strange perfectionism where we expect everyone to have always been perfect and and fully formed, you know, like Athena from Zeus's head in Greek (laughs) mythology. Like we came out of the womb with all of the right right answers and all of the right virtue signals. That's, That's exactly right. And unfortunately, that is not what it means to be a human being. Alexander Pope said, to uh, err is to be human. To forgive is divine. And uh, we've, we've lost an appreciation of what Blaise Pascal viewed as the human condition, which is the greatness and the wretchedness of man, that each of us have within us a little bit of Gilgamesh and a little bit of Enkidu, a little bit of the libido dominendi and the incurvatus say, the lust to dominate and the inward curve upon the self, like the baser part of ourself, and a little bit of of benevolence and the milk of human goodness that Enkidu embodied in that story. I love the story of the uh, Cherokee grandfather talking to his son about the two wolves within each of us, that um, he says to his grandson that there's a, a, a good wolf, a wolf that is kind and gracious and, and benevolent and hospitable, and then a wolf that is malicious and exerts power over the powerless and is, is cruel. And they're constantly fighting within your soul. And the grandson says, which one will win? And the grandfather replies, whichever one you feed. Mm. So what, what, what are we, and, and by feed, like what are we feeding within us with our habits, with our practices, our daily occurrences in ways great and small? Are we nurturing the good wolf or the bad wolf, the inner Gilgamesh or the inner Enkidu within each of us. And so, but the point about unbundling is that unfortunately, um, you know, the inner, the inner ugliness within us sometimes rears its ugly head and we make mistakes and we say bad things. We do bad things. Um, sometimes we improve, sometimes we have bad opinions and we, and we improve our opinions, but even changing your mind is seen as flip-flopping, you know, today. And, and it's seen as you, you, you don't know, you don't know, um, what you actually think about a subject if you change your mind on it, when we should celebrate changing our minds, celebrate, uh, people who with new information grow and, and, and assimilate that into who they are and then their, their view of the world. Um, I had an experience unbundling people, seeing the part in light of the whole, the irreducible dignity and worth of, of a person and the, and the good in someone alongside the bad and not choosing to reduce them to either all good or all bad. Like what does it look like to, to reclaim nuance and both celebrate the good, condemn the bad in people? I did that with one of my favorite intellectual um, influences called Socrates. So Socrates mm. taught me the beauty of the philosophic life. He taught me to appreciate beauty and goodness and truth. He taught me the value in um, eternal things and ideas and um, why the things of this world matter less and the immortality of the soul and like why we should pursue ideas more than stuff and, and, and be detached from, from the world. And all of these ideas were very, are very important to me. But Socrates, according to his student Plato, anyway, uh, held views that I disagree with, <laughs> to put it mildly. He was a proponent of eugenics. Mm. He wanted to abolish the family. He wanted to abolish art and music and poetry in a society. I'm you know, opposed to eugenics. I'm a mother, so obviously don't love the idea of abolishing the family. And I'm a creator. I love art. I love poetry. I love music. I'm not a fan of, of that idea either. Um, so he had, he didn't get everything right. He got, had got a few things wrong. Um, I disagree yeah. with Socrates on, in, with many things, but 
I'm still able to, by unbundling him, you know, see the, see the good alongside the bad, I'm able to benefit from the good while able to, well, being able to condemn the bad. I don't feel this need to essentialize him and either agree with everything he says and celebrate him as this like unilateral, unilateral monolithic hero or villain, you know, and, dis, and feel the need to dismiss and, and, and everything that he says, even though uh, I disagree with him in some ways. So unbundling people is a mental framework that I think could really help us um, as we encounter the good and bad in ourselves and the good and bad in those around us. Because it's just, it's who we are. You know, like to, we, are, we are human beings. We're flawed. We're going to be imperfect. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to do and say bad things. What does it mean to, to remind ourselves of the inherent dignity and worth of ourselves when we make mistakes and others when they make mistakes and see that alongside the mistakes and, and, and let that be the most important aspect of 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 leading with that yeah you know i'm glad you brought that up because there was one illustration and one comparison that you made that uh, i had i had a problem with to be candid um and that is and and i wanted to see if we could unbundle the common portrayal of the pharisees (laughs) so just a little background i grew up in a very observantly jewish family we went to an Orthodox synagogue, and I became a Christian when I was 28 or 29. Um, so I grew up with a different view of the Pharisees who uh, were uh, – the rabbinic movement was in its infancy or, you know, um, they, they led ultimately. The Pharisees are really uh, – the, 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 the rabbis and the rabbinic movement are the heirs of the Pharisaic movement. So I have a di- very different view of them, and subsequently I, I've read – I've been drawn to – certain scholars who gave the Pharisees a different treatment, um, not necessarily than what the New Testament or the gospel accounts give them, but what I've seen in common portrayals of the Pharisees, like in typical uh, passion plays or what have you. Um, in fact, one, one of the scholars I've come to really respect is not too far from your neck of the woods. Uh, he taught at Notre Dame, a guy named John Howard Yoder. So hmm. um, there's a common, it, it's a very two-dimensional, I, I think, uh, portrayal of the Pharisees as strictly rule followers and the emphasis on the exterior um, versus uh, Jesus's arguments with them or his debates uh, with them that uh, I, I, I always saw those arguments as very Talmudic. You know, even, even Matthew 23, where it gets very heated, he, Jesus gets very heated. But I saw that as it looked very familiar to me as just another, you know, um, at the end of Shabbos, uh, you know, we, we, we'd have these dinners and we'd get into heated arguments about um, uh, Talmudic arguments or, or about, about, um, about Torah, about scripture, if you will. So I, I, um, I wanted to see if we could unbundle the Pharisees or at least the common uh, portrayal of the Pharisees. I understood why it was used for that um, illustration but I, I just I wanted to bring that up and see what your thoughts are on that. I think it's a great idea for a piece, a hot take piece from you in defense of Pharisees, in defense of the Pharisaical. Uh, I think that could be really interesting. But I think the the section you're talking about is in my chapter on integrity and the, the discussion of Jesus of Jesus Christ, who shows us. Uh, who calls out hypocrisy, and he he shows us that um, 
being good or seeming good is not as important as being good. And I go through many instances in, in the New Testament, um, in Christian scripture, where Christ calls out people who are outwardly um, obeying the rules, but inwardly um, cursing others or uh, harboring sin internally. And he says, that's not enough. And he was ruthless uh, about, about condemning that in, in, in the people of the, day, of the day around him. It's not just the Sadducees. So I don't know if that helps. It does. It does. <laughs> he wasn't just... And I do make a distinction between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees did yes. have a vested interest in keeping a certain order, in keeping a certain um, line of power, if you will. I find the Sadducees to be um, much more convictable, if that's the right way to, to call it. But I, I, the Pharisees, to me, historically, were the ones who were trying to, were earnestly trying to figure out how to act out the formation of a people that Hashem, that God, um, provided for us in the Hebrew Bible. Um, the way that we should be with each other, the way that we should eat with each other, the way that we should wash uh, after a meal, the way that we should... Um, accept the uh, the uh, the foreigner among us. The the way that we should um, be among other nations around us. It was about being a people, the formation of a people. And the Pharisees, in uh, there there were some of the mitzvot, uh, some of the laws that they were following um, that are obvious. Um, you know, w- washing your hands before and after a meal. You know, it makes makes sense. You know, there but there are some laws that just really don't make sense. Uh, but th- those are the ones that take a little bit more faith. And I think the Pharisees were earnestly trying to figure out what does that look like in practice? What does that look like on a day-to-day basis? And some of those illustrations make sense. It's like that's why it's worth having the argument. It's worth having the argument of this man's hand is withered and whether it's it's Shabbos or not, I'm still going to heal it because healing takes precedence over, you know, uh, Mm-hmm. you know, over this particular legal interpretation. Uh, so those those are arguments I think are, are worth having. But I see that, I, maybe I, I feel defensive for the Pharisees, that I, I, I feel like coming to their defense because I appreciate the arguments uh, that, that they have, you know? It's a hot take. No, <laughs> I appreciate the hot take. I, yeah, take it. <laughs> awesome. The hot take. I, the Pharisees in a hot take. I didn't think I'd hear that in a, in a sentence. Um, so I, I do want to uh, I, I be respectful of your time. So you have this exciting online, the Civility Summit coming up October 9th. So hopefully a, a bunch of folks will hear this before October 9th. What I have to know, you, I, I told you before we hit record that um, – you have this dream team together for this event, and half of them are, are guests that you know we've been fortunate to have on this show. But the other half are like my le- list of dream guests. So, how are you able to put such a, a wonderful uh, group of people together and tell us a little bit more about the Civility Summit? Thank you. So, the Civility Summit is happening October 9th. Uh, it's, it'll be streamed live. I pre recorded interviews with some of the most thoughtful and surprising thinkers of our day. And we are talking about how do we flourish across deep difference, uh, which again is the topic of my book and is the most important question of our day. Also, a timeless one, but no less essential for us to be having now. And my hope is that um, getting people, uh, 
thoughtful people like that and, 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 uh, you know, one place and, and succession to talk about this idea that that gets attention and that initiates a much needed, much overdue conversation about, about this, this question of flourishing amid difference in a, in a free and pluralistic society, especially as we enter a presidential election cycle where, where challenges of, of incivility in our public life and public discourse will, will only get worse unless we do something about it. So I'm hopeful that uh, it's completely free. So please, uh, if you just Google civility, underrated, overrated, that's the, that's the, that's the kind of defining question of the summit. And that's the question. That's one question I ask all of our, our participants and they spoil, spoiler alert. They, they tend to think that civility in its true sense as distinct from mere politeness is drastically overrated and a key to a free and flourishing society. So come hear what uh, these thoughtful people have to say, join us. Um, we have, I just recorded my conversation with Francis Fukuyama, who also graciously endorsed my book. Uh, I've recorded with Jonathan Haidt with um Tyler Cowan I'm recording with George Will tomorrow Kim Scott who's a, a fabulous creator uh, author of Radical Candor uh, a great book on why respecting people means breaking the rules of politeness sometimes so a great book Chloe Valdry, John Wood uh, Russell Moore David French just some really thoughtful thoughtful thinkers so come come out and, and, and talk with us be part of this dialogue with us um, I was... these people care about this topic so that's, yeah. that's, that's you asked how is able to get them. They they know that this is an essential issue. So really grateful that they're able to join. I was us. curious if you inspired David to look at uh, the C.S. Lewis quote that you shared toward the end of the book. Uh, fr- friends are unnecessary, like beauty and art. And yeah, you know, um, he, in his essay last week for the Times, he um, he included uh, that same quote. So I imagined that he read your your book and and was inspired by. You know, that. it's a great question. He has it. He has it. He has my That's book. That's awesome. So I'm not sure if he's read it. He didn't mention that if he'd read it when I interviewed him last week. But I I after I read that article on friendship, which was so beautiful, I I, emailed, I texted him and said, Hey, I talk about this. In case you haven't read it, read it. <laughs> well, if you get a chance. No, he's wonderful. He is a, if you yeah. get a chance, put in a good word for us. Uh, we've been trying to I get will. David on the show for, for quite some time. We had Sarah Isger uh, early on, and she, she was she's fantastic, and some of his other colleagues. Um, but uh, he's definitely top of our list. George Will, Jonathan Haidt, we're already in touch with. So many of uh, – Chloe Valdry is fantastic. Uh, I'm so uh, – Yes. You, you have a great list. Uh, and obviously we will include the link in our show notes so you can um, you can find more information about the summit there. I, we've been talking about this – I call it the TPNR question. Um, but uh, I, I, want, I, I want to hear your thoughts on it. The, the, the question is what do you think each of us can do to be able to share space with – have better conversations with, uh, perhaps even nurture relationships with people across our differences, people who think differently than we do, who have different beliefs than we do, who get their news from different sources than we do. How can we do better at talking politics and religion without killing each other, or is it even possible? One of my favorite books is called How to Live on 24 Hours a Day. And it was written in um, like early 1900s England. And it was, this was at a period in, in history where there was an increasingly like a middle class of like white collar workers, people who were no longer on the farms and in factories, but they were commuting in suits to the office and working nine to five and going home again. And this, this gentleman who wrote this book, Arnold Bennett, he speaks to 
this sort of intellectual stagnation that he assesses, that he, he's diagnosing his society, that we're just kind of dulled, like we're, we're um, just sitting in offices and just wasting away in chairs and we don't feel like we're exercising our mind. And, and he says, but that, that, there's, that's okay. There's good news. We only have 24 hours a day to live. So what we have to do is create a day within a day. We have to, you know, go to our job and meet our, then, you know, earn, earn an income that meets our physical needs. But then we have to come home and create a whole second day where we can meet our intellectual needs. And he has this great line. It's all about intellectual curiosity. And he, he says, he says, curiosity begets curiosity. The more that you learn, the more you want to learn. And I really do think that curiosity is a hidden secret to healing our very broken and divided world. We live in this age of certitude, like moral, cultural certainty, where we're all very sure that we know everything there is to know and that no one has anything to teach us. But what if we invert that? What if we approach every person we encounter, our Uber driver, the cashier at the grocery store, um, your mother even, (laughs) you know, I have a hard time sometimes my mom, uh, you know, our parents, those closest to us that want to speak into our lives. It's sometimes it's easy to just like put up blinders and like, you know, shut people out in our lives. But what does it mean to invert that and say every single person we encounter has something something to teach us? Yeah. Has something that we don't know. Um, so curiosity, I think can heal our, our very broken, our very, our very divided age. And, um, it's also, this is, you know, a little foreshadowing to my next book, the secret to the life well lived, having the the curious life. It's it's a hidden hidden underrated secret to just flourishing of the soul and, and the joy filled life. And I will mention, and um, anyone who orders my book, orders my book, uh, or orders my book um, at any point gets uh, a bundle of seven hundred dollars worth of gifts that I've created, including a whole separate ebook called Cultivating curiosity, the hidden secret to the life well lived that shows how we can become more curious and how curiosity can heal our divides and help us flourish personally and societally. So that is uh, available at my website, alexandraohudson.com. Just enter in your order information and then you've got it. I think that's the one part that I did because I read the digital version and then I literally just got the hardcover uh, It's yesterday. beautiful, isn't it? Oh, it's, it's fantastic. And I think that's the one because there's um, between the end of the book uh, and acknowledgments, there's this one page of thank you gift. And I just noticed that that wasn't in my digital copy. So I think that's what you're talking about. That's awesome. So that's actually a second gift. Oh. I, I, I am, I'm, I'm profligate. Like I love to just like give and give and give, <laughs> as you can tell. So, so the pre-order gift that I'm talking about is for anyone who buys the book. But this other gift uh, at the end of the book is a thank you for reading it. It's one thing to buy it. I actually want you to read it. So at the very end of my book, I have a thank you gift. And that thank you gift is a two-month subscription to Wondrium. So it's like, you know, oh. a $40 value. Wondrium's uh, the platform. It's the great courses. I was raised on their content. And they... Um, I just created a TV series with them. It just came out in February of last of this past year called Storytelling in the Human Condition. And it's like, it's just, it's Netflix for the intellectually curious. It's Netflix for education where you just binge watch thoughtful creators, um, History of the Roman Empire, history of, um, you know, what is astrophysics, Greek mythology 101. I was raised on their content every birthday, every Christmas. My parents, my dad would go to his mystery closet and bring out a new Great Courses DVD or VHS set for me to enjoy. And so when they reached out to me about, 
yeah, two years ago now about creating a course for them. It was an honor of a lifetime. Like I, I just like totally nerded out. And so I, I'm, I'm giving everyone two months of, uh, of Wondram, which you can claim after you buy the book. So two separate gifts, but thanks for noticing that. Wow. That is awesome. All right. A couple more. Well, one question and one piece of business. Do you have any questions for me? What's the thing that you've most enjoyed learning from your guests in all the three years that you've been doing this? Enjoyed is a very specific, what's the most I've enjoyed learning is a very specific way to ask that question. Okay. It has been the willingness of people that I have revered from afar and who have a who are renowned um, in their fields, in their respective fields, their openness to come on a show like this. I have shared this before, but I have this. It's a inverted. Don't you know who the hell I am? Moment. Uh, a lot of times when somebody responds to me, and it's not. Don't you know who the hell I am? You know, like you know, it's the opposite of that. It's like somebody gets back to me. My, one of my favorites was uh, Jonathan Haidt. He he, um, excuse me, uh, Jonathan Rausch. Uh, well, Jonathan Haidt did a, a version of this too when he first got back to me. But um, Rausch was my favorite response ever. He said, "You had me at hi, John," because <laughs> <laughs> he. I had a couple of his colleagues on the on the program uh, pri- a, a few months prior to to me reaching out to him. And he had listened to my conversation with Pete Wayner. Um, and, and the idea that someone as renowned and accomplished, someone whose work I, I revered and, and respected and engaged with for years, like John Rausch, would get back to me and say, oh, man, I listened to that you know conversation with Pete. And that was awesome. And you had me at High John. That, like, that has been the most enjoyable part for me. Um, you know, because, like, I'm not... I'm not old, but I'm not young. So you get to a certain age where it's like, oh, somebody's paying attention. That's really cool. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's been that's been one of the most um, gratifying uh, parts of of doing this thing. So before we go, how can folks follow you? Find more information about the book and the summit, and uh, just all the great work that you're doing. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm on all the things, all the platforms. It's overwhelming. <laughs> all of the things. But yeah. I'm there. All the things. But yeah, my uh, Please Join Civic Renaissance, uh, my newsletter and publication dedicated to beauty, goodness, and truth and reviving the wisdom of the past. And um, that's where you can stay up to date with book stuff and just continue to learn with and alongside me and a community of nearly 50,000 people who care about um, intellectual curiosity, lifelong learning, the life of the mind, and healing our divides with, um, with, with wisdom and beauty. So join, join us there, and thank you for buying the book, and thanks for listening. Absolutely. And again, those uh, links will be in the show notes, for it, so it's easy to uh, look up Alexi, Alexandra, and um, find more information about the book and the summit, and, and just so much uh, good stuff that you're doing for our culture, all the porching. <laughs> exactly. And unbundling. Exactly. Um, tonight, tonight is actually my, uh, my book launch party. Uh, my book tour starts today. We're two weeks out of, from publication date, and I have a conversation with Joanna Taft at the Harrison Center. So the porcher in chief herself and I are talking about beauty and community uh, in just a few hours. So you can maybe 
jump over and watch the recording of that after. Portrait in Chief. I love it. I bet she would love <laughs> that uh, that title as well. Thank you so much for doing this. It was really great getting to know you better. And it's always a, a thrill for me to, I guess that's a part B of the, the answer to your question is like, I read these books and then I get to actually talk to the person. It's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. You know, I form mm-hmm. this, um, I, I, I develop a relationship with the author through your writing, but then I get to know the human and it, it's, you know, it's 3D, <laughs> you know? Yes. It's really cool. Yes. So thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me. You bet. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, hit the subscribe button and leave that review. Seriously, like take the time, go to one of the apps and allow you to write a review. It really makes a huge, huge difference. Easy way to find us is politicsandreligion.us or you can find me online at Corey S. Nathan, C-O-R-E-Y, S as in Sam, Nathan, at Corey S. Nathan. Now, go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect. And do some porching and have a great week. And civility. And civility. That's right. That's right. (laughs) Thanks again.